0: You know, I feel like the argument out there, this is why I get so frustrated in these conversations. I understand the argument that there have always been fires and there will always be fires. Yes, as you said, parts of the ecosystem need those fires, but the fires don't have to spread in this way. The fires don't have to endanger this many people. The fires don't have to kill this many species. We can do a little bit better here. This is Sarah. This is Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of Graceville political conversations.
1: Hello, everyone. Happy Friday, and welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We are back, still catching up on the news. We're going to tackle the escalation, or as it stands now, de-escalation of conflict with Iran. We're going to talk about the wildfires in Australia in greater depth. And Beth has begrudgingly agreed to talk about Harry and Meghan's, dare I say, shocking announcement. About their future inside the British Royal Family.
0: Shocking. Ha!
1: It is shocking! Listen, it's shocking. Okay. That is an that is an accurate description of what happened.
0: Why don't we start in Iran before we move to this breaking news out of the UK? There's been a lot this week since we were last with you. There has been the Iraqi parliament's decision to ask US troops to leave. It was a non-binding decision, but it was fairly significant. Our administration's gross display of incompetence in sending what the administration now says was a draft letter to Iraq saying, yes, we do respect your sovereignty and will in fact pull our troops out.
1: A draft letter already translated into Arabic.
0: So that's a I'm a little skeptical of that explanation. Not the first the draft, record. I'm betting. And then the attack by Iran on an Iraqi Air Force base. Uh, message from the president on Twitter assuring us that all is well with that. Statements on Twitter from both U.S. and Iraqi officials indicating that everyone feels perhaps like we're even and so we can maybe stop doing this, but not forever because we still really don't like each other. Is that a fair summary?
1: I do think de-escalation is accurate. If you are only paying attention to the actions that Iran is claiming. Right. So I think that they felt it was necessary to openly take action and claim it, which they did,
0: which is unusual for Iran.
1: Right. Right. And I think they did that. And I think that they did that while having their foreign minister on Twitter and many other places saying, we don't want war. We don't want war. We don't want war. And so there was, you know, an effort to de-escalate the forward-facing part of this conflict, but I think the back end of this conflict, any forward movement on keeping Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, cyber attacks, any interference in our elections, or proxy battles with militias in Iraq or Syria or Lebanon, I think that has only heightened and become more dangerous and more problematic. And there is even less room for compromise or agreement or mutual
0: understanding. Part of the reason I sound so cynical about this is that we issued another round of sanctions in connection with the president's announcement that things are de-escalating. And I agree with you, Sarah, that the motivations of a whole group of very loosely affiliated actors are certainly dialed up against the United States Mm -hmm. for the foreseeable future. And I worry about the economic pressure. I read a really illuminating interview with the president of Iraq in The New Yorker. A number of pieces of that interview really struck me. The one that I can't stop thinking about is the president of Iraq said, you know, American politicians constantly campaign on a message of jobs, 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 how important it is to keep adding jobs to the United States economy. And he said, think about what we need here. We need that to an exponential degree here because we have this fragile economy that is trying to rebuild We have so many young men who do not have access to good work here. And the opportunities for those young men are not favorable outcomes for our country or yours. So Mm -hmm. we've got to have a minute economically to get things in order. We've got to have some foreign investment. And by continuing to squeeze Iran economically, we harm the entire region, not just Iran. And we increase, I think, the likelihood for the next militia to spring up that decides it's going from regional actor to global extremist perpetrator of terror.
1: Well, and the other part of this conversation that's really bothering me is this idea that, well, no lives were lost, everybody move on. When we still Lack so much information about the Ukrainian airplane crash in Iran. One thing that I read that really helped me put this in context was an article with aviation experts saying, hey, you never know why a plane crashed that quickly. A plane doesn't crash and then moments later, everybody says, oh, mechanical error, moving on. Like, that's not how it works. It takes weeks and months to figure out what happened. And the fact that the Iranians are claiming that it's clearly mechanical error, that they have taken possession of the black box, is really concerning to me. And I don't think that we are even at the beginning of understanding what happened to the 176 people who lost their lives on that plane or what caused the plane to go down. And so until we have a better understanding, I think this, like, dusting off our hands off and saying, nothing to see here, no lives lost, is,
0: um, it's a little
1: preemptive, in my opinion.
0: And I understand that the connection to a Ukrainian plane seems like maybe we're getting into conspiracy theory territory. But it's, it's hard not to do that when, like the United States, Russia certainly uses the Middle East as ground to advance its own interests. And we know that Russia has been allied with Iran, at least as it relates to Syria and in other ways. And so for Russia to take advantage of the mess that I think our administration created over the past couple of weeks would make sense. It would follow a playbook. And so it's not as attenuated as maybe it seems.
1: Well, and even if it was an accident because of heightened awareness and escalation in the region and everybody being a little hair trigger that still matters absolutely that still should be put in the tally of what this cost us and what this cost the world and not just sort of filed away as an accident and it doesn't really matter um i still think that is really important and i think the other part of this conflict that isn't over is the conflict between congress and the president over the justification for the assassination of General Soleimani and the ongoing conversation about just which branch of government has the
0: authority to make these decisions. There are reports that the briefing was contentious. Mm -hmm, You have mm -hmm. some of the strongest language that we've heard used to criticize the administration. Yeah. From Republican Senator Mike Lee, who said that this is the worst briefing he's attended in his nine years. I don't know, Sarah. I have such a mixed reaction to that. There is a part of me that just listens to those complaints from Congress and thinks this administration has expressed nothing but contempt for the institution of Congress Mm -hmm. since the day that President Trump was sworn in. And so what do you expect you know, when you start to cede power and authority, people take more and more and more. And that's what the administration's doing. They're just taking more and more. I saw quotes in the Dispatch, a morning newsletter that I read about how uh, staffers said that the members of the administration who were there to brief Congress acted like they were doing Congress a favor by being mm-hmm. there and that it was an annoying favor that they really wish that they weren't doing. That attitude is wholly unsurprising if you look at the track record of the last couple of years.
1: Yeah, I definitely understand what you're saying that, you know, and I think we began a part of this conversation on Tuesday, which is if you have a Congress that has acquiesced in the expansion of executive power, what – role do they have to play or what justification do they have in trying to take back some of that power? And I think it's complicated. I I don't think Congress is ever one body. I mean, I think particularly with the House of Representatives, you have a new Congress, not just a Democratic Congress, but a Democratic Congress composed of many freshman members, many freshman members with intelligence experience who most likely have a very different view of Congress's role. And, you know, you have a new generation of Congress that grew up under this war authority that's been in place since 2001. They're almost their entire, you know, our entire adult lives looking at this with fresh eyes. And I think we need to give them the benefit of the doubt or the leeway or the freedom to push back and reclaim some of that power for Congress. And then there's also a part of me with regards to people like Rand Paul and Mike Lee, which I think is sort of a different conversation. I believe me, I understand the instinct to say, Too little, too late, guys. Give me a break. But I'm really trying to lean into that, you know, the conversation we had on Tuesday and the idea that, you know, we need conservatives. And not to shut someone down completely because I think they've been a part of the problem in the past. Um, there was a, actually a really good conversation about this on Friends Like These with Anna Marie Cox, and they were actually talking about Christianity and church, and Bren recommended it to me. But she had this great conversation about never-Trumpers, and, like, she was basically like, you know, it's really hard to listen to Bill Crystal and not think about his role in the lead-up to the Iraq War and the, his role in all this, the sort of conservative— long-term conservative intellectuals, and in, in some senators as well, and their role in this expansion under Bush and even Obama, now all of a sudden, you know, crying out in the face of a problem they helped create. But she was like, I still believe that they have a right to participate in the conversation. I don't want to shut them out completely. I just think we also have to hold them responsible. And I think that's what we have to do with Mike Lee and Rand Paul, you know, and people especially to say we need your voices we appreciate you recognizing the problem we also need you to take responsibility for your role but we can have them take responsibility without pushing them back into the arms of the trump administration by shutting them down so hard and so quick that you know you kind of take this well why even bother approach right and i think that's what's
0: really difficult to do. I think I'm looking at this in a little bit different way because I don't disagree with anything that you just said. My problem, and and maybe this is a little bit of a departure as you're talking about the freshman members of Congress, I think a fundamental source of the difficulty in congress exerting its role is that it has allowed itself to be animated by individual personalities instead of by collective mm-hmm. action and this administration has talked to the american people consistently about congress as who's with us and against us on an individual basis and when someone like jeff flake before his retirement would make a speech criticizing the administration Instead of talking about what are the problems here, the administration just turns its ire to Jeff Flake as an individual, Mm -hmm, and Jeff Flake mm -hmm. as an individual retires, and on we go to the next dust-up. And for me, I care a lot that we have the information that this briefing was inadequate, and I thank Senator Lee for that. And I also recognize that until you have Congress as a body— willing to act to exert its power collectively regardless of who is in the majority in that power but where Mm -hmm. congress says we care about our power over declaring war we care about our power to issue subpoenas and have them complied with in connection with our constitutional oversight role we care about the administration trying through Executive branch rulemaking to undo statutes that Congress has written. We care about all of these things enough to sometimes come to a conclusion that maybe doesn't align with our party platforms because the Mm -hmm. power of Congress as a collective body matters. It's just hard for me to feel super optimistic because I see this as such a large issue that has been laying dormant for so long. Well,
1: speaking of collective action, It looks like Nancy Pelosi is getting very close to sending the articles of impeachment to the Senate, which will trigger the Senate trial. There's been a lot of discussion this week about the rules for that trial, and we wanted to give you a heads up that we will be discussing Senate impeachment rules in detail on Tuesday's episode. So look forward to that. Listen, here's the thing. I've been thinking a lot about this, and I don't want to make this about Harry and Meghan and just— their individual, like a celebrity gossip thing. I know you're not into that, and I don't really think that's why this is important. But I do think, for better or for worse, the British royal family is of economic importance to Britain, of cultural importance to Britain. I don't know, maybe of psychological importance to Britain. And I think that is interesting to talk about and important It started because we decided they were chosen by God to lead and that they were sovereigns, and we still use the word sovereign. I'm not sure anybody believes anymore that the British royal family is important because they were chosen by God. So... Probably like
0: one or two people believe that.
1: Maybe one or two, but I think we could probably abandon that philosophical approach to the royal family. I'm I'm interested in hearing your perspective on the importance of a figurehead, a person who, as the queen, has I think, and arguably done particularly over the twentieth century, offered stability and sort of a, a foundation. A person who is a, above politics, who is a a vessel or a channel for um, national identity and patriotism and. All of these things that I do arguably think are important for a nation and, you know, particularly as one of the longest serving British monarchs, as one of the last surviving monarchies generally. I mean, I think there is sort of something interesting and I think the reason Harry and Meghan are so important is that they and this decision is so important is it speaks to is there a role for this? In the 21st century, as our world changes and we – our media changes and the media environment continues to exact a real toll on these actual human beings filling this figurehead role.
0: It all makes me think of that extraordinary quote from Zora Neale Hurston that there are years that ask questions and years that answer. And for the UK and arguably for the globe, we're just in a question asking time because the figurehead – being challenged in this way in the same month that the UK is scheduled to crash out of the Mm -hmm. European Union, I think is pretty significant. I think every country has its version of those symbols that are supposed to be above politics. And I think that that notion is getting challenged that anything actually floats above politics is hard to swallow At this moment in history, that fiction that things float above politics depends on the marginalization of a lot of people. And certainly Mm. that's part of the story of the British Empire and, and the UK as it exists today. I think the same can be said of the way that we use the U.S. flag and the bald eagle and some of our symbols that are supposed to float above politics and be unifiers of American identity. There are wonderful things about that. There are are deep, ugly things that are covered up by that as well. And so I have no conclusions about what the overall impact of this sort of fracture in the royal family portends, but I, I think it is consistent with the way lots of institutions are showing themselves to be dated and perhaps incapable of holding all of the stuff that countries are trying to work through internationally and domestically here in 2020. I
1: mean, I think it's just it's so complicated because I do think psychologically, culturally, nationally, both in the United States, around the world, every country, there is a real hunger for something someone, a place that is not political. I think it is an asset to the British people that they can have some sort of ritualism or importance placed on ribbon cuttings and charity work and citizens that are contributing of their time, that the royal family can show up and do that And it's like, oh, see, this is important to all of us. And we don't have to get into a fight about Donald Trump throwing paper towels or, you know, Barack Obama's – like, you know what I mean? Like that there is someone – like the first lady used to – could do that to a certain extent. You can't even have that anymore. That there is is a way to say, hey, look, isn't this a beautiful thing that's happening in our country or aren't these citizens doing good work or isn't this important to everyone? And I think that, you know – That costs money and they should be compensated and they see that as a duty and a responsibility. And, you know, it's this real, especially economically, it's this really weird, weird mix with the royal family. They get a sovereign grant from the government, but that money comes from their property. But their property comes from this historical taking sovereignty, taking that from history on down because they were, you know, it's just it's this really, really complicated mix. And at the same time. They bring in a lot of money. I mean, estimates into the billions of tourism dollars that the royal family brings in by participating in British culture in this way. When I heard this news about Meghan and Harry, I kept thinking about a conversation with Jared Bias that we had at Evolving Faith. Y'all probably know him from Bible for Normal People, but he also does consulting for family businesses, which I find fascinating. There's a lot of family businesses in Paducah and you know, how unlikely it is. Let's like, what did he say, like 30% or less actually make it to second or third generations? And at this point, I think the royal family to a certain extent really is a family business. And I see so many strains of, I don't want to take this money because it means you can control me. You know, if if Harry and Meghan maintain their senior royal family position, which they are publicly saying they would like to give up, you know, they get a lot of money. There's no doubt about that. But they also lack total control over their lives, and they can't earn their own money. You're not allowed to do that. Um, you have to do these events. You, I mean, it's just it that exchange gives up a lot of freedom, and that's just within the palace and their rules. That has nothing to do with the media and the British tabloids and the, the ownership and entitlement they feel to members of the royal family. And I don't blame them for— especially considering the history of princess diana and the struggle she went through i mean you know we're all watching the crown i mean not everybody i'm watching the crown lots of us watch the crown and it is it is such a sacrifice they make and no one wants to hear that these people who (laughs) live real fancy lives make sacrifices but it is not something i would ever choose for myself or my children it comes at such a cost and i think it's really hard because I, I see the benefit to the British people. I see the bit, Brit- the benefit economically, and I wonder – and I'm a person who loves it. I love the weddings. I love watching what they wear and what they do and all of it. And I, th- But, you know, the more you watch it over generations and the more you learn about it, the history of it, I just want to be like, hey, y'all, it's not worth it. Like, get out. It's fine. William, Louis, Charlotte. Kate, Charles, all of them, just get on out, y'all. Like, It's kind of how I feel about fame in general, and I think about this with Amy Winehouse and Whitney Houston a lot, and artists I've loved that it just exacted such a toll. And I think there's, it's just human beings at the end of the day, and if it comes at too high of a price, and it comes at too high of a price, it's not worth it for the rest of us. So I don't know. I, I don't, I'm of two minds a lot often when it comes to the royal family. And so I feel I can hear both arguments when it comes to Harry and Meghan's decision as well. We will be right back after this short message from our sponsor. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames I have one in my office I have one in my kitchen I have given one as a housewarming gift I have given one as Mother's Day Father's Day they are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer in my personal opinion in digital frames it makes it so so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos it plays like you're in Harry Potter you guys it is the best I love mine so much and right now Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best selling frame that's A-U-R-A frames.com use code pantsuit at checkout to save terms and conditions apply this show is sponsored by BetterHelp can I get something off my chest every day I feel a little pang of sadness Entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest, and you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P. dot com slash pantsuit.
0: Since September, wildfires have been blazing in Australia, and we thought today we would take some time to talk about how these things started, what's really going on, and what the impact has been, along with how do we react from a policy standpoint to an event like this? So at
1: this point, as of early January, we are talking about 12 million acres burned in the Australian fires Y'all, this is more than the California wildfire, the Amazon wildfire, and the Siberian wildfires combined. This is a massive event in
0: this country. And we're using event because it's kind of coalesced in that way. But these were a bunch of different fires caused by a bunch Mm -hmm. of different things. Some were started by lightning. Some were started by people. There is arson involved in some of the fires. But the climate conditions in Australia have been exactly right for the fires to grow and spread. It's been very hot. There's been lots of winds. Over the past weekend, there were winds approaching 80 miles per hour. And so the conditions in Australia have been just perfect to drive the intensity of these fires, the spreading of these fires, and the areas that they're impacting. Because –
1: Australia is facing severe drought. It's their summer season. You have geography playing a factor, depending on the area in which the wildfires are taking place. And this has resulted in thousands of evacuations. The reports say that 25 people have died this summer alone and that 2,000 homes have been destroyed. It doesn't just affect the areas where the wildfires are, but that the smoke affects everyone in Australia Right now, breathing the air in Sydney is now as
0: bad as smoking 37 cigarettes. I was really startled by this report from the Red Cross that in some areas, the bushfires are creating their own weather systems. Mm -hmm. The quote is, they're generating pyrocumulonimbus clouds, trapping heat and generating strong wind and lightning strikes, in turn sparking further fires. And the smoke is also making its way around the, the globe. There has been smoke from these fires over parts of South America
1: Wildfires are normal in some parts of Australia, but what you're seeing this time is regions that are affected that have no recent history of brush fires that aren't prepared to deal with this type of natural disaster. And, of course, you also see terrible impacts on the wildlife in Australia, which really has one of the globe's most interesting and unique ecosystems Some estimates put at least half a billion animals and closer to maybe one billion animals that have been impacted. You have billions of dead, and that includes, you know, everyone's favorite Australian animals, the koalas and kangaroos. That's not counting insects and frogs, where the number is most likely much, much higher.
0: A few species are facing total extinction because of fires, the Korobori frog, the mountain pygmy possum, the glossy black cockatoo. There are animals that are really important to the ecosystem overall. All animals are important to the ecosystem, but I was interested in reading about the potteroo, a rat kangaroo, important to keeping forest soil healthy, and as the potteroo is threatened... There are plant species that won't be able to regenerate, and that harms the animals that feed on those plants. And it's just, to me, a really uh, concrete example of how all aspects of ecosystems are dependent on one another. So you start to threaten one piece, and the consequences spiral rapidly.
1: So as this crisis has spiraled, you are seeing a lot of dissatisfaction, anger, anger, arguably, fury at the way this is being handled by the Australian government and specifically the prime minister, Scott Morrison.
0: The prime minister is very uninterested in talking about climate change as related to what's going on. He is focused economically in a way that is, I think, very short-sighted. Australia is the second biggest exporter of coal globally and the second largest carbon emitter per capita behind the United States. And the prime minister is focused on increasing Australia's position as the world's largest exporter of liquefied natural gas. He does not want To put time, energy, and money into measures that would undermine the short-term health of the economy, which just seems so short-sighted to me when certainly the evacuation of this many people, the destruction of this many homes, this kind of damage to the animal population also has significant short-term economic facets, Mm -hmm.
1: Well, he had this sort of infamous speech before parliament where he took a big lump of coal and was like, there's nothing to be afraid of, and sort of painted people who are concerned with climate change as very apocalyptic and overreacting. And I think it's not just that he is so defensive about any discussion of climate change, but that he was so dismissive and underreacting to the, the crisis on the most sort of basic management level, infamously, lots of infamous events when you come to to begin talking about the prime minister. He was on vacation in Hawaii at the end of December while many of these wildfires were raging. So you have these awful images of people's homes burning and people on beaches trying to be evacuated. And meanwhile, he's in Hawaii, like sporting a shirt and looking like he's having a grand time. So he comes back from his vacation early He's resisting the idea of paying volunteer firefighters, and then two of them are killed. He shifts on that. He's saying that basically it's the individual state's responsibility to fight the fires. Then he reverses, and now he's calling in the military. And, you know, he has created a new National Brush Fire Recovery Agency, and he's trying to fund these now. But, you know, a lot of what you read is that he, he started in tourism, and he's sort of this shallow pr guy and if that's true and that's his history he's really bad at it because the pr of these positions of him like putting out this video of all the great things he's doing to help the wildfires i mean it just he is tone deaf left right and center from what i can tell
0: it certainly seems that way Although it is hard sitting here in the United States Mm -hmm. to cast too many aspersions on climate leadership, you know, as all of this is happening, we have a report from the New York Times that the White House is introducing changes to our National Environmental Policy Act, trying to ease the approval of pipelines and other major energy and infrastructure projects without environmental review. And so what they're trying to do through rulemaking, so not asking Congress to do this, but just saying, well, like, let's use our agencies to change the meaning of a statute enacted by Congress. They're trying to create a new category of non-major federal actions that would be allowed to move forward without any environmental assessment. Mm. But there's not a definition of what non-major means. There's not a dollar threshold or a geographic threshold. And so experts say you could almost shove anything into non major. The new rules would also say that agencies no longer have to consider the cumulative consequences of new infrastructure. Courts have interpreted that cumulative consequences requirement in the statute as requiring consideration of greenhouse gas emissions and rising sea levels. And so, this really is the administration giving permission to agencies as they approach new projects not to think about climate change. This is probably going to lead to lots and lots of lawsuits, and I don't know that it will ultimately take effect, but. I'm struggling to be too critical of Scott Morrison when this is what's happening in our own government as well. And I get that it's frustrating to have a bridge that takes 20 years to construct because of all the studies. Mm -hmm. But I would rather take 20 years to think about the impact than wake up one day to a really significant portion of the country on fire. If we're able to prevent some of this or contain. You know, I feel like the argument out there, this is why I get so frustrated in these conversations. I understand the argument that there have always been fires and there will always be fires. Yes, as you said, parts of the ecosystem need those fires. But the fires don't have to spread in this way. The fires don't have to endanger this many people. The fires don't have to kill this many species. We can do a little bit better here. And Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you.
1: It seems like Australia is just a... Seems like Australia is like this distillation of what's happening in the United States, right? Because you have a right-wing leader who wants to focus on short-term economics, the, the transactional nature of short-term economic growth, and ignore the long-term consequences of climate change. You have parts of the population, bigger and bigger parts of of the population waking up to the impact of climate change through the lens of natural disaster. I saw this poll It said with regards to Australians' attitudes towards climate change. It said in 2006, a national poll found that 68 percent, it's pretty high, of Australians agreed that global warming is a serious and pressing problem that should be tackled even if it involves significant cost. By 2011, that had dropped dropped to 41 percent but was steadily rising again to 59 percent in 2018. And I think that happens in the United States because they are, you know, smaller and, you know, realities of their ecosystem, these are playing out in more dramatic ways. You're seeing this sort of conversation accelerated in interesting ways that I think the world should pay attention to because all of the themes that you see and what's happening to Australia are true for the United States. They're true for lots of parts of the world. You know, how far are we going to let this get? How much is it going to cost? What does it mean for our short-term economic future, for our long-term economic future? What does it mean for um, the sustainability of our planet and, like, just basic tourism stuff? Like, we didn't even talk about what's happening to the Great Coral Reef. I mean, it's just—it's not going to exist— as we understand it existing right now in 10 years, five years, what does that mean for the short-term tourism economics of Australia? You know, just all these things, you see it in just a more extreme manifestation, I feel like. And we should all be paying attention. And what I desperately hope is that the people of Australia lead us, right? They show us a solution. They show us a way forward, from what is a real trauma that they're experiencing right now.
0: And there will be mental health dimensions of that trauma, another Mm -hmm. aspect of this that we haven't talked about. But this will reverberate in Australia for generations. And there's no sign of it stopping. There are predictions that these fires are going to start to consolidate into one sort of mega blaze. We d- we just don't know where this is going. I agree with you that I hope we can learn from what's going on in Australia and apply it to other situations. I think this connects. D- just uh, don't fall out of your chair. I'm going to go back to Harry and Meghan for a second.
1: Ah, I'm so excited.
0: I said in response to your question about figureheads that. I agree that there's value in having things that don't seem explicitly political. And there's also harm in trying to say that anyone anything is free of politics. I feel the same way about economics. There is harm in being Mm -hmm. convinced that what is good economically is inconsistent with what's good for the planet. We've allowed this idea of what's healthy to the economy to become defined really narrowly, not only in terms of timing, but also in terms of what counts. And that's a conversation that's playing out in the United States primarily about wealth inequality. But I think it's so relevant to the climate change discussion. When we think about what the economy looks like, we have to think about what it looks like for all people. and certainly people with fewer resources are at much greater risk of enduring the brunt mm-hmm. of um, natural disasters and other issues associated with climate and weather. Our capacity to continue to produce is jeopardized, as you mentioned, tourism. So we just need to take a more expansive, view of what we're talking about when we assess the economic impact and assess the investments that we're being required to make and how they might pay off in the future uh, than I think we've traditionally been taking.
1: Well, thank you for always joining us for these expansive conversations about climate change and foreign policy and economics. And of course, the British royal family. We'll be back in your ears on Tuesday. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces
0: Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com
1: pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show.
0: Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way.
1: Our executive producers are
0: Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, David McWilliams,
1: Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler.
0: Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events
1: that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com.
0: And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.